Almost Awakened podcast, a no-nonsense approach to spirituality. Here we dive deep into the wisdom traditions while acknowledging insightful breakthroughs in science, psychology, and human development. Our goal is to explore the good life and the very best of spirituality, no-nonsense required. Check us out at almostawaken.org where you can check out past episodes, make a donation, email us a question or comment, or find out more about the resources we shared. And now, today's podcast episode. Welcome to another episode of the Almost Awaken podcast. I'm one of your co-hosts, Bill. And I'm Mikkel. And we are excited to have you with us today. Today, we're going to be talking to Ben Brown. Ben, do you want to say hi to everybody? Hi, everybody. There we go. Ben, let's get started. Maybe briefly give us just a, a bio of yourself, like who you are and, and what you do for a living and kind of get us started off with just kind of a little bit of uh, basic information about you. Yeah, um, I am a uh, educator. I started teaching high school right out of college. I taught for an online high school for about uh, 10 years and moved into uh, administration. So now I don't teach as much. I, I help run the, run the uh, school. And um, I live here in St. George, married. I have three kids. I like to play the guitar. <laughs> what do you want to know? <laughs> when did you learn to play guitar? Uh, just recently, actually, I've I've started uh, started practicing back in January, and uh, it's kind of just like a new way to explore creativity and and just in, enjoy flow state and and have a good time. Yeah, I love that too. Have you always lived in St. George, Ben? No, I uh, I uh, grew. I don't know if you want to save this for like a big reveal or something, but I I grew up in Wyoming, and and I grew up. My my parents were polygamists, and so I grew up on a like a legit polygamous compound. Um, <laughs> wow. Yeah. Well, we're, we're, we're already knee deep in it, Ben. Yeah, so let's, so let's talk about it. Yeah. So I grew up there. Uh, my parents, uh, just a, like a small, outside of a small town in, in Northern Wyoming on this little what town, Ben, uh, the town was Lovell, um, which is probably something that no one has ever heard of and rightly so. Um, and Lovell is kind of the place where dreams go to die. Oh, <laughs> so sad. It's not a. It's not. I'm sure that some people had lovely experiences in Lovell, um, but I did not. <laughs> and uh, yeah, so I, I grew up there. I left when I was about uh, 20. Um, when I uh, met my wife, and we got married, and I joined the LDS Church, and I was LDS for about five years, and um, that was actually a really great experience for me. I know that a lot of. I'm assuming that a lot of your listeners are probably you know, and have had some level of experience with Mormonism and, and probably negative. And for me, the interesting thing was that it, it and I, I tell this to people and they laugh, Mormonism helped me liberalize. Wow. <laughs> so, like that was, that was my path to, to a more, uh, you know, to a more progressive and to a more liberal worldview. Um, and, and it was really helpful, right? I, I don't think that I ever would have gone from, uh, I would never have gone from kind of the very closed fundamentalist ideology that I was raised with to where I am now without, I needed a bridge. I needed something to, to get me, to get me to that point. And, and the LDS church was really great for me for that. So I, and then after a couple of years into that, I kind of went down the, down the rabbit hole, like figured out some stuff about the, the, the church history. And then I was like, Oh, it's all bullshit. And, and then I just kind of backed away. So, and my wife did about the same time. So we're both out. We've been out for now about five years and, and it's awesome. <laughs> was your wife polygamist as well? 
No. So she was LDS. She, she'd been okay. born and raised. And so I met her. It's kind of, it's an interesting story because it, it, and it actually kind of ties into some of the things that I, I'd sent you about, um, you know, the, the mind and the way that the mind works, because at the time I had what I would qualify as a spiritual experience where I, you know, I prayed about the church versus polygamy because she was very LDS and we started dating before we knew what we were going to do. Right. So we'd known each other for a couple of years and, and I'd just been, I was smitten. Like I was so in love with her and, and she, but she was like, sometimes she would be really into me and sometimes she wouldn't be. And that was quite confusing. And, and I figured out later that that's because she really, really liked me, but the, but the religion thing was an issue. Right. And so, uh, so, so like sometimes we'd hang out and we'd just gel, we'd be, it'd be awesome. And then like the next day she'd like cold shoulder me and wouldn't talk to me. And I was like, what the hell is going on? And, um, anyway, uh, you can cut me off guys at any point if this is not interesting, but, uh, eventually we started dating we'd known each other for about two years and then we started dating and, um, and we were dating with the, both of us were really religious, right? We were really, um, fully bought into the ideologies that we were raised in and we like fully bought into the myth. And so we, it was important to us that we find someone who was, uh, in the same religious, uh, mythology as us. Right. And so, uh, obviously we weren't. And so we, we decided to start dating and then we we would just kind of figure out which one of us was right. And the, the great irony of that is that both of us were wrong. (laughs) (laughs) But at that, at the time we were, we were dating for a while. And I think that, so, so I, I kind of, we, we, we would have these long conversations about religion and I eventually started praying and, and I like prayed to know if the church was true. And I felt like I had like a spiritual confirmation of that. Like, yes, that's true. And so I joined the church and, um, and that was a, a whole deal with, with my family, obviously. And then, um, and then after a couple of years into the church, we figured out some stuff and then we, and then, then we left. So that's interesting to me because of the way that our minds work. So I had my mind created an experience for me that, I think that got me out of a really bad situation, right? It, it, it got me and it got me what I wanted, right? I was in love with this girl. I wanted to be with her. And so my mind constructed an experience that I needed in order to get me out of that and in order so, to be into the thing that I wanted. So Ben, how did your mind know that that's what you needed? Um, I think my mind is smarter than, than the myth. I think that, so so couple couple of different things kind of strike me there. One, my family was not, I, I want to be, you know, cautious in, in how I, I say this because I don't want to throw, I don't want to throw anyone under the bus. And I, and I've also addressed this directly with my parents. So it's been a, a quite a journey w- with them, but, but, you know, recently this year I went and I actually confronted them about some things that happened when, when uh, I was a kid and we've kind of worked through that and, and come out the, the far side of that, but it was not great. Right. There was some, there was some real abuse that went on. And, uh, and so I think that there was, there was that portion of it. I think that my mind knew that not, maybe not even consciously, right. Cause in my conscious state, I'm running the, I'm running the myth, right. I'm running this, funny, right. this myth that says, uh, suffering is good, right. The, the more you suffer, the more righteous you are. Right. Uh, uh, you know, the more isolated and the more other people, uh, hate you, the more righteous you are. That's that persecution mindset, mm-hmm. right. And, and so 
that's kind of what's running in my conscious mind. But I think subconsciously, I'm very much aware, like my body hurts. I'm, I'm being exploited. I started working, my family owned a, a bakery and I started working in it when I was eight. And, uh, oh my gosh. yeah, like, like I, so I didn't go to school. I didn't, I never went to elementary school, never went to high school. Um, and, uh, so I just worked in the bakery starting the day and I started working full-time when I was 11. So I kind of, what? Worked a little bit, and then when I was 11, I started full-time and then I sat down about six months ago cause I was kind of going through some, I was kind of unpacking it. It took me about 10 years of getting out of that before I was able to really, um, really feel like safe and like distance enough that I was able to go back and like examine what had happened objectively. And so when I did that, I was like, Oh wow, fuck. I was like exploited and a child slave. It was pretty intense. And so like I, so I started working when I was 11 I was able to track it because our, our days were pretty similar. So I actually sat down and I tracked, I was like, okay, how many hours did I actually work from the time I was 11 to the time I was 18? And it's, it was, uh, over 15,000, which, Oh my gosh. Yeah, which works out to be like a 40 hour, you know, it's, it's a full-time job over the course of, from when I was 11 to, to 18. And that was all, that wasn't like all the time. It was all, it was actually, uh, it was built into spurts, right? So I would work really, really long days, especially during the summer. I would work 12, 14, 16 hour days and like every day of the week. And I can't remember where I was going with this, <laughs> except, uh, yeah. So, so obviously my body knew that was difficult, right? That was not the way that I wanted to live. I didn't want right. to doing things like that. And so even though in my mind, like the, the, the program that my mind is running is this is important. This is because my family has this whole belief where they believe in the end of the world. And, and so because of that, they believe that their little commune that they're, they're, they're living on is, is like, they're keeping it safe for when the destruction of the world happens, because then all of the righteous people will come to live there. What they don't know is that not even in the end of the world would anyone voluntarily move to level Wyoming, but you know, they, they don't know that. (laughs) Um, yeah. So, so that's running in my brain, right. And it's saying all of this, all of this crap that's happening to me is for this higher purpose, right? There's, there's this story behind it that legitimizes it and makes it meaningful. And so but, but the experience of it was incredibly painful. Right. And so I think that my mind is like, no, I don't want to live this way. And I, I don't, and even consciously, I didn't want like the consciously when I would be doing it, I would be thinking, I don't want to do this. I, this sucks, but it's, you know, it's what God wants me to do. So I'm going to do it. And so as soon as, as soon as I could come up with a way that it wasn't what God wanted me to do, that God wanted me to do something else, I was out of there. I'm fascinated by all of it because it's so intriguing to me. I'm an open book. You can ask me whatever. I I do want to ask, Ben, I want to have a conversation for a moment about being in the system. You and I were talking, we were at a party sitting down, just kind of chatting on the 4th of July. And we're having this conversation about you being in this system that relegated uh, education to a very low priority, Mm -hmm. right? Like you weren't, you weren't really learning um, school stuff. Like you said, you didn't go to elementary school. You didn't go to middle school. You didn't, you didn't go to high school. Yeah. And whatever education they perceived giving you, it wasn't, it wasn't a traditional standard education, right? Yeah. I mean, they, they homeschooled right. Like in, in air quotes. And what that meant was when my mom, I mean, my, my parents had like 16 kids between three parents. And so there were a ton of, of people around. And so and I was the third. So my homeschool kind of consisted in my mom, like 
like my math education was she gave me a Saxon math book and was like, here, work on this. And so I like read this algebra too and tried to work out the problems by myself. Um, but then yeah. I just worked. Right. So yeah, it wasn't, it wasn't, it, it was given a lot of um, like, if I were to talk to my parents and if I were to ask them, Hey, do you think education is, is important? They would say, yes, it is but their actions don't actually match up with that, right? They don't prioritize education in their lives because they're, they're at least for me, I don't know exactly what, what it's like now, but for, for me, I spent more time working and I didn't have any kind of formal, you know, formal education. Right. And so as people are listening to you talk, I mean, you're, you're well-spoken, you're articulate, you're smart. I can tell you're an intelligent person, um, but you're in this system that, uh, on levels you don't even understand is suppressing education is mm-hmm. suppressing your individuality. And yet here you are, you're an adult male who's you've read a ton. You're very informed, you're intelligent, you're articulate. Like what does it mean to, for you? Like, how did you do that? Like I'm, I work in a pawn shop here in Southern Utah and I see people from the polygamous sex all the time. And in each of these groups are different granted, but education has a lesser value. It seems in most of these groups. Yeah. And when these people come in, and I don't mean any, um, uh, any kind of criticism of them, you can tell that they're not educated. And yeah. when I speak to you, I see an educated person. Like, how did you go from deconstructing the system in a, in a space that was a lack of education and became informed and educated? Um, how, did, how did you do that? Yeah. So, I mean, and just to take your point a little bit further, it's not only that education isn't a priority, education is seen very much as a threat, right? So, so the, the wrong kind of education can be a threat because it, it can like people get educated and then they leave, right. Or they, de- they deconstruct the, the worldview. So, so it wasn't just that education wasn't a priority or isn't a priority for these groups. It's that education is seen as an active, like an outside ed- education. What we would, what the, what the, you know, what the Western world would consider a, the bare minimum, what's required for an education, things like science education, evolution, stuff like that. Those are, those are direct threats to their religion. So it's, 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 there's an antagonistic relationship. Um, right. As far as, as far as me, I, I mean, one of the things that you said that I, I think is true is, is I'm a male, right? I, I'm, I'm a, I'm a guy. And because of that, I had more opportunities than the, than the women in, in that sex. So I, I was, I was out more, I had more opportunities to interact. So I think that's part of it. Um, part of it is I, I'm just, I think I'm lucky. Like, I, I don't know that I can take a lot of credit. I was born and I was curious and I liked to read and, and I can't, it's hard. It's hard to like, like you, you said a lot of really flattering things. It's hard for me to like take credit for any of that because I didn't, I didn't create the part of myself that that is curious. I didn't create the part of myself that loves to read. That was just always there. And so I just did it. Like I, I started reading when I was about two. Um, I, I, I taught myself to read by observing my mom teaching my older brother to read. So she was teaching him and I would kind of like look over her shoulder and I just picked it up. And then I just started reading everything in the house. Um, we'd go to the library and, and I'd check out as many books as I could. And I'd sometimes, I'd, I'd also like smuggle, like uh, I, I read books that I wasn't supposed to, right? Uh, initially, my parents tried to keep on top of it. They tried to like control the flow of information, but I, I read too fast for them. And so they eventually, like their limits, their choices were either keep me from reading anything or 
let me read whatever I wanted. And so I just read whatever I wanted. So I, I was reading classics. I was reading, I read a ton of fantasy, which was like super fun. That was like a really, really fun thing for me. But I also read like uh, Dickens, um, you know, Victor Hugo. I read Tolstoy. I went read War and Peace when I was 14 and I just it like blew my mind and I loved it. So, I mean, it's, it's really that. Like I, I, I feel like I'm just, I, I got really lucky and, and I just worked with what I had and what I had was a love of reading. Yeah. So on some level, self-educated and on another level, like I think you're pointing to something like we can't take credit for our gifts or our shadows. Like they're, they're there. They're just part of who we are. We come with them. Mm-hmm. I, I find it fascinating. This, this whole deconstructing of systems, you know, you deconstruct fundamentalist Mormonism. Mm-hmm. And then you go into LDS Mormonism, which is, you know, kind of the, the most well-known branch of Mormonism out there. And it's, it's a softer version. Like you said, it gave you some liberal views, which really yeah, weren't that liberal, right? Right. It yeah. liberalized you, even though it wasn't that liberal. Yeah. And, and then you deconstruct that system. And, and then you, I got to imagine at that point, like every system's up for grabs, any, anything that's up for being deconstructed at that point, you're open to deconstructing, right? Yeah. And I, and I have, right. I've, I've done a, it's actually one of the things that I think is, I think that one of the things that that people sometimes miss when they have a faith crisis and they, and cause it's a really painful experience, but it's also a tremendous opportunity because what it does is it's an opportunity for you to examine. Let me, let me maybe, maybe back up the, the way that I understand the human mind is that we're all, we're all, it's story-based, right? We, we live, we swim in these stories that we tell about ourselves, about other people, about the world, about, um, you know, this is very, like, I, I know, Bill, you've read, you've read Harari. This is myth, right? We're, that's the operating system that our brain uses. And that's really useful because that makes it so that we can interact with each other really quickly. It make, make, means that we can make rapid decisions. It means that we don't have to spend a lot of time deconstructing is hard, right? It's if, if you had to deconstruct every, uh, every interaction that you had, you would never get anything done. So it, on the one hand, it's really beneficial to live and kind of swim in these stories. On the other hand, we're now living in a time where because of our global world, all of our, all of our local myths, which when they were by themselves, it was fine right? When it was just little pockets of myths and everyone basically believed the same thing, that was, it, it, there wasn't a problem. But as soon as you have globalism, you have all of these myth, mythologies starting to come into conflict with each other because they make claims about the world and about people and about relationships that are just antagonistic. They don't match. So they make competing claims and then people within those communities start to leave. And because of our tribal you know, because of the way that our, our mind is wired in, in tribalism, we attack and we ostracize people who leave, who challenge our, our myths, because that's a threat to like our, the very foundation of our, our, of our reality. And I'm sure you've experienced that, Mikhail. I'm sure you have as well, right? Like when someone attacks your story, that's, that's almost physically painful, right? Because it's, that's the way that you make sense of the world. That's the way that you interact with your tribe. That's the way that you, you know, have meaning and purpose in this world. And so we're in this we're in this really interesting time in human history where we have access to all of this information, we have access to all of these different myths, and they're all in conflict with each other. And so I think that um, you know one of the benefits of having a faith crisis is that you can get you, you have an experience of deconstructing a worldview, and being able to deconstruct a worldview, I think, is a really useful skill because what it allows you to do is it allows you to to take a step back 
from the myth that you're living and actually look at reality and say, does my myth conform with reality? Does my myth make me truly happy? Does my myth make me truly compassionate to people who are different? And if it doesn't, you can then start to grab other pieces of myth from other, other, other places and install it into your, into your operating system, essentially. And, and that, that I think, for me, that's made me a, a more compassionate and a more happy person. Uh, it's been painful at times, for sure. And there have been times where I've like, like I remember when I first, when I first left polygamy, polygamy was the hardest, honestly. Like once you've deconstructed one worldview, the second one is, is a lot easier because basically when I left the LDS <laughs> church, I was like, oh, it's just another religion that's not what it claims to be. Sweet, I got this. Like I've done this before. This is no problem. Leaving polygamy was scary, right? Because polygamy was so, it was, it was incredibly isolating. Um, I, I didn't have a friend who was of a, who was outside my sect until I was 20. And, and that was like, so my entire life, I, I never really interacted with people who were, who were different than me. Um, and so that, that was like, it was incredibly isolating. And it felt like the, it felt like I was living inside an egg and all of a sudden the egg opened up and there was the sky. And I was like, so it was, it was horrifying because it was massive and vast and it was also exhilarating because it was massive and vast. And so that's just kind of a, the way that I've, I've kind of experienced and, and processed that. I think that, I think that deconstructing is, you can go to maybe not too far. I don't think that there's, that's, that's kind of a judgment, right? But you can, you can go down the path of deconstruction and, and end up in like nihilism, right? Where nothing matters. And I think that that's an unfortunate place to end up in because if you, the, the other alternative is to go down the path of deconstruction, realize that because when you're deconstructing, what you're doing is you're deconstructing the stories that you play in your head that you, that you use to make sense of the world. And those stories aren't real. Those stories so, are, yeah, go, go ahead. Sorry, Ben. How, how, how do you do that? How do you, you know, especially someone coming from a highly fundamentalist religion, how do you even have the brain capacity to say, like, I need to reevaluate my worldview? I, I like to use um, triggers to, to do that. So anytime I feel a, a strong or a negative emotion about something, that to me is, is a, it's actually, I'm like stoked anytime it happens because I'm like, great. That means that there's, there's somewhere in my operating system, there's a belief or a, or a, a view or a thought that needs to be deconstructed. And so then I can just, usually what I'll do is I'll kind of sit a, a meditation practice or a meditation outlook really helps because if you can get, in order to do that, you really have to be able to observe your thoughts, right? So if you can't, if you can't sit quietly and observe your thoughts and not get attached to them, that's kind of the first step, right? So if you, if you haven't, if you don't have a meditation practice or if you don't have some method of, of recognizing that you are not your thoughts, you are not your stories, you, you, you're the one that's observing them, that gives you space, right? And then you have that space and then you can observe it. And so then I, so if I get triggered by something, then I'm stoked, right? Because that means there's something, there's something in myself that has been disturbed by something outside of me. And that's only because of a story that I'm running in my head, that there's literally no reality to that. It's only neurons in my brain that think that this is how I should respond to this, but I don't have to respond that way. And so if I can sit and observe that, usually what I find is I'll, I'll kind of uh, and this is actually kind of going back to the, the Marissa Peer uh, uh, stuff that I sent. I've, I found Marissa Peer about a year and a half ago, and she has a really formal system for doing something that I've, I've done for a couple of years, just kind of 
on my own informally, which is I'll observe that trigger and I'll just ask, why do I think that? What, what is it that I think? What is it that I believe that makes me feel that way? Hmm. I can usually come up with a, with a belief and it's something like, um, I, you know, I'm always, uh, in fact, let me grab a journal too, to do this. Cause I, then I can kind of see if I can find an example. Okay. So, so this was back, back in like 2014, I had, I, I can't even remember exactly what it was. Something happened. I think it was something at work. And I was, I was like, I felt kind of like, I felt, I felt unsettled. I felt like, oh, this is like a big task. This is something that I, I don't know that I can do. And so I observed that. I observed that kind of that trigger that I, I had. And I felt, I thought, okay, what is the, what's the belief that I have here? What is it that I'm believing about this situation that is making me feel disturbed? And the, the word, the phrase that came to my mind was I'm out of my depth, right? I'm out of my depth. And I'm like, okay, interesting. What is that? Where does that belief come from? Where, where does that originate? Where did that come from? And I just kind of asked myself, so I'm meditating. I'm, I'm, you know, I have my eyes closed. I'm just breathing and I'm kind of observing my thoughts and I'm just asking myself, where does that come from? Why do I think, why do I have this feeling of when I'm out of my depth that I, that I'm at risk, that it's scary. And I remembered that it kind of traced it back in, in my mind to this time when I was, uh, when I, my, there was like a, a reservoir that was next, next to my house. It was called big, uh, it's called Horseshoe Bend. And we'd go there to swim sometimes. And I remember I, w- I went out there and it was this big lake and it was, I don't know how far across it was, maybe half a mile. And, um, and <laughs> I was like 12 or something. And I was, and I decided that I wanted to swim across it. And even though I, I, wasn't necessarily like a great swimmer. I was just like, that sounds cool. And so I started swimming and I got about halfway through and I couldn't feel the bottom. All I felt under my foot was like feet were, was cold, freezing water. And I was like, oh my gosh. Like, and I looked back and I was like, I'm fucked. Like I've got, I, I'm going to drown out here because I'm tired and I, I don't know what I'm going to do. And I started, started panicking. And then I was like, the only way that I'm going to do this is I just got to keep swimming. And so I just kept swimming through and, and then I eventually got to the other side and kind of crawled out. And then I went back to, you know, my family and like, I'd almost died and no one had even noticed, like no one had even noticed that I was gone. And so that created a really, really powerful, you know, memory of when I'm outside of my depth, no one's going to notice me. I'm not going to be okay. And I'm, and I might die. So if I'm in this state where I start to feel like I can't handle this, I immediately, I, I have this emotional trigger where I go back to this experience that I had when I was like 12 of when, when I'm swimming, right? Cause my brain is wired that way. Your, our brains are designed to take one instance of something and, 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 and just create a shortcut. So if something happens once, especially if it's, if it's high emotion, we're going to say, we're going to do whatever we can to avoid that feeling again. And our brain will, our brain will run with that. And, and, and that makes sense, right? Like, like if a thousand years ago, oh. if I'm in, if I'm in, or 5,000 years ago, I'm in a jungle and I, I hear this certain crack of the leaves, like that noise being stored in my, in my memory and my body is crucial the next time that, that twig gets snapped and there's a leopard there that was there the last time. Yeah, exactly. And there's no, there, in, in evolution, there's no, there's no, uh, there's nothing wrong with a false positive, right? So if, if the twig snaps and it's a, and, and it's a chinchilla and you freak out, no problem because you didn't get eaten by a lion, right? But, right. If it, but, if there's, but the opposite isn't true. If there's, if there's a false, um, I'm not thinking of the right word, but if, if it's a false negative, so it snaps and you don't pay attention to it and it was a lion, then you're toast, right? right? So our, our, our brains are designed to work this way. 
It's just that we live in this complex social modern world where a lot of the times it's not useful, right? So what I do then is, so with that experience, then I, I thought and I said, okay, well, what's a new way that I could think about this, right? What's a new conclusion that, what's a new belief that I could, that I could install here that would be more beneficial? And, and so I kind of like observed the story a little bit and I thought, oh, well, I, it's obvious, like I'm a strong swimmer. Like I got, like when I was out of my depth, I just did the thing that I needed to do and I was fine. I got out of it. And, and so that took something that was a really, that took a belief in, a, in an experience that had been disempowering and it just turned it on its head a little bit and then it became an empowering belief. And, and that's kind of what I'm talking about when I say well, we can upgrade our thinking, we can upgrade our, our, our software. We, we have that capability, right? Our, the reality of the way that our minds work in my, in my experience, and I think that a lot, of, a lot of science backs this up, is we live in a world of our own construction that is, that is influenced by reality. It's influenced by external circumstances. But a lot of what we perceive is filtered through what our expectations are, right? You, yeah, you just totally described like a whole year of a life coaching session that I did and paid massive amounts of money for. <laughs> <laughs> because it's worth it, right? Like as soon as you have that experience, as soon as you realize, oh, I can do this, everything switches. Because now all of the experiences that I have, the quality of them is up to me. I can't control external circumstances completely right? I cannot always control what's going to happen to me, but I can always control the, how it feels to me. I can always control how I experience it. True, true. But it, it takes, um, you wanting to have ownership of all of that instead of being like placing blame on everybody else, because for a long time, you know, that it's, it's so much easier to make it somebody else's fault. And I grew up in a family where you know, it was always somebody else's fault. So shifting that takes work. It takes a lot of work and it takes a lot of practice. And it takes, it takes, for me, it takes a, you know, it, it takes, I, I love what you said about how you, you have to accept responsibility. Once you realize that you have to accept responsibility for the things that you happen, like the experiences that you have that are good, that also means that every time that you are unhappy, every time that you are angry with someone, every time that you are experiencing negative, the the quality of your experience is negative. That's your choice. You're choosing to do that. And, and that is, that's painful sometimes because I've, I've had some really negative experiences, right? I've had some really, some experiences where I've been very angry or frustrated and really wanted to blame other people. Right. And, and to, to take ownership of that and to say, yeah, that was actually me not the circumstances, right? I don't own other people's shit or other people's circumstances, but my response to that, that's always my fault. Mm, mm. I find that interesting only because I agree with you 100% and I disagree with you. And, and here's what I mean. I agree with you that 99% of life, like, look, shitty stuff's going to happen and I can make the best of it and I can choose to be positive and I can choose to... Um, find value even in bad experiences because I'm learning things and they help me to grow and to be better. I get all that. But on the other side of it, like too, like shitty, shitty stuff happens to people. And some people are in situations where like it is just constant deep trauma. It's, it's significantly harmful to them. There's no escape in the immediate future. And, and to just sit in 
and again, we could just pick the worst thing. You're a kid who gets kidnapped, right? And you're in the basement of some weird guy's home. Like, how do you make the best of that? Um, but, uh, but on some level, like 99% of the time I'm with you. And I think too, Ben, I think sometimes we look at these situations and we go like, um, like at least me, I'm aware of it enough to go like, yeah, I could choose to make the best of this and not blame and, and shame others for how I'm feeling. But man, that would take a lot of work. And sometimes that work feels like it's just too much. And sometimes it might be too much, right? I, I, I really think that the only way to really grow is to experience. And that, what that really means is when, once you're aware that I have control over, over the quality of my experience, that means that sometimes you'll have to experience not wanting to take, take control, right? I've, I've known that cognitively and then still chosen to be upset and to blame someone, right? right that's easier. easier. Right? Yeah. But the, I, I love, are you guys familiar at all with Viktor Frankl? I was just going to talk about his book. I love his book. Yeah. Man search for me. Oh. So like, and, and here's, this is, this is the thing. Like I, there's, there's, there's a certain amount of authority that you have as someone who's suffered. And obviously there, there are like, there's, there's not like, there's not like a suffering contest out there. Like everyone, everyone experiences suffering the same way. And so it, it's whatever level you've experienced, it's going to be incredibly painful to you. But I think if someone, like if there's a group of, if there's a person who like maybe has earned like the highest level, like they're like the suffering champions, it's probably someone that was like in a concentration camp, right? I can't really think of a worse situation. And so if, if someone like Viktor Frankl can go through a concentration camp and come out of that saying, the quality of your experience is entirely up to you, that, that makes me think, you know, me and my Western, you know, in my wasp privilege, there's not anything that's going to happen to me that I can't choose to experience differently. Um, yeah. Yeah. And I, I love this. This is, I just pulled this up. This is my favorite quote from, from Frankel. And it, it's him talking about the, uh, the experience that he had in the camp. And he says, we had to learn ourselves. And furthermore, we had to teach the despairing men that it did not really matter what we expected from life, but rather what life expected from us. We need to stop asking about the meaning of life and instead to think of ourselves as those who were being questioned by life, hourly and daily. Our answer must not consist in talk and meditation, but in right action and in right conduct. Life ultimately means taking the responsibility to find the right answers to its problems and to fully sets for each individual. And I love that because that is a fundamentally different approach to, uh, to, to, to thinking about this problem. Because I think, I think there's, there's one camp of people that say, just think positive thoughts and you'll have positive experiences. And, I, and frankly, I think that's bullshit, right? I think that you're, that's, not, that's not true. But what is true is that you don't have a lot of control. You have some control. I don't think we have as much control as we think we do of external circumstances. But life is constantly asking us questions. Everything that happens is life basically saying, how are you going to respond to this? How are you going to respond to this? And that's our responsibility. Our responsibility is, and it's not to do it mentally. It's not to like, thinking about it isn't really the point. It's right action and it's right conduct. Are we acting in response to life in the way that is, that is uh, enlightened? Is it awakened? Is it, is it compassionate? Or are we acting from a, from a lower place? And there's no judgment if you're acting from a lower place because we all do, right? But the goal is, I think, eventually to have more of our responses be, um, you know, enlightened and less 
you know, kind of ego driven. Yeah. Yeah. Tell us, you sent a, you sent three links. I had a chance to listen or watch those the other day and uh, listen to the audio of each of them. Uh, I'm in the middle of uh, reading behave by Robert Sapolsky and I'm, I don't know, I'm eight, maybe eight hours in, it's like a 26 hour audio book and I don't know where he goes with it, but so far it's like hours and hours and hours of these really cool, unique human behaviors. Some of them that struck me were, um, if people are in a room with smelly garbage, they tend to be more conservative in their political views than if yes. they don't have smelly garbage around, right? And, yeah. and then there's this um, uh, reciprocity thing going on where when we're harmed, we look to harm somebody else and it makes us feel better. So the, the silverback gorilla beats the, the next in line up and the next in line punches one of the female gorillas and then she goes and shouts and, and charges at one of the infant gorillas and, and next thing you know, everybody feels better except for the infant gorilla, which has been traumatized. Like all these human behaviors like, are fascinating. Turns the legs off of a beetle or something. Right, right. Like we're, like we're all getting traumatized by the world and then in turn to feel better inflicting trauma on something else, right? Yeah. Um, so I find the human behavior of the book fascinating. You send a couple of these links out and, and watch those maybe talk for a moment about some of the interesting things you are, have learned or thinking about wrestling with on how the brain works. Yeah. So, so behave is, is really fascinating. Robert Sapolsky is a, a neuroscientist and he is, is kind of standing a lot of the, a, a lot of the ways that we think about the mind and behavior on, on, on its head and kind of the gist of what he's saying is that, and he actually, he's an, he's an advocate for, he thinks that our current criminal justice system is, is, is medieval because what he says is that we punish, we punish people for things that are, that if we understood the biology of behavior, we would recognize it was, it's not their fault that they're not choosing to do it. They're, they're really driven by their biology, which I know is kind of a, that's, you could, you could take that and then you could, you could extrapolate from that. Well, I'm not going to take responsibility for my actions. And that's where some of the other stuff that I sent kind of plays in. But the essence there for me is, it's easier for me to be compassionate to other humans when I recognize that a bunch of their behavior is simply driven by, by default unconscious execution of biological functions, right? That when someone gets mad at me, when, when someone yells at me, it's almost never about me. It's almost always about the context of their lives. What, what happened to them? What, where, where was the silverback gorilla that punched them? right? And they're, they're transmitting that on, on to me. And so that's that to me. And the whole book, the books, it's pretty dense, but it's, if you're a nerd, it's really fascinating because he talks about all, he just goes through and talks about all of the different, you know, uh, uh, you know, neural structures and, and the biology of why we do the things that we do. And you read that book. And, and my big takeaway was, if, if you, and this is why I'm kind of interested, like in, in the, like the, the title of your podcast, right? Almost awakened. I think that there's, I think there really are two kinds of people. I think that there are people who are awakened and people who aren't. And that might sound a little exclusive or judgy, right? Because I mean, obviously if I'm saying that, what I'm saying is I'm one of the awakened ones. But what I mean by that is there are people who are just kind of executing the stories and the biology that they're built, that they're built with. And there are people who have realized that that's what they do. And so they're trying to, they're trying to not just execute the programming that they were given. And so I think that's the distinction. And, and I think that we're, we're actually in kind of an exciting time in, in human history where I think more and more people are, are waking up, right? More and more people are beginning to realize that 
a lot of their default ways of acting and thinking and, and speaking aren't really chosen. They're, they're just execute. They're just running these programs. And for humans, it's interesting because it's not only biological programs, which is what behave talks about, but it's also mental and emotional programs. And that's where the, the second link that I sent you, the, the, how emotions are made, which is this fascinating book by uh, a, another neuroscientist named Lisa Feldman Barrett, where the, the essence of what she says is that Lisa Feldman Barrett, her, her entire thesis is that emotions are, are uh, tied to our body budget, meaning that every, everyone has a body budget which basically regulates how we intake and, and, and output the energy needs of our system, right? So taking in food, putting out exercise, basically trying to regulate how much energy do we need for any given moment. And our emotions are designed to help us predict the, emo- the, the, the energetic needs of our body. And that sounds a little technical, so maybe let me give you, give you a, a specific example of that. What that means is that our brains don't actually function in the real world. Our brains function in a simulation of the real world that they create, and they're always trying to predict what's going to happen. So even when you're listening to me, you're not actually listening to what I'm saying. You're not actually hearing the words. What you're doing is you're you're taking in that input, but your brain is trying to predict what I'm going to say. And that's why sometimes someone will say something and you'll hear something totally different. It's because your brain made a different prediction. And so that's what's called prediction error. So sometimes when we, so have you ever like been walking down the stairs at night and then you think there's a stair there and then there's not, and you like, you like kind of have that feeling like you're going to die. Like once a week. (laughs) Yeah. That's, that's an example of prediction error because what's happened there is your brain made a prediction that the world was going to be a certain way. And then it wasn't that way. And then your brain panicked because your brain was like, holy crap, I'm supposed to predict because that's what your brain is supposed to do, right? Your brain is supposed to predict what's going to happen so it can keep you safe and manage your, your body budget. And so emotions are designed that way. And so the, the thing that's fascinating about what, what she says is that essentially what emotions are, are your brain's best guess about why something is the way that it is. So if you wake up in the morning and you feel... Like maybe, I don't know if you've, you guys have experienced this or not. I, this is like my experience almost every morning. I wake up and my mind is instantly racing. Oh, what, are, what are all the things that I have to do today? I've got to go and I've, I've got to teach this class and I've, oh, I have to call this person back. Oh, and I've got to pick up milk from the store or whatever. Like it's, I'm thinking about all of these things which are pulling me away and it's causing, it's giving, it's making me anxious. It's making me stressed. And what she says is we experience those emotions and we think that they're real but actually what's happening is that our biology, our body is probably just dehydrated because we've been sleeping all night. What? So our bodies are feeling poorly, right? Our bodies feel bad. And so because of that, our brain is like, okay, our bodies feel bad. Something's wrong. Something's wrong in our environment and it's making our body feel bad. So I have to figure out what's making my body feel bad. Okay, let me think all the things that could be making my body feel bad. And because we're such social and complex creatures and because we live in this rich social and socially complex world, it constructs all of these emotions about all of these things that could be happening when really it's just a simple biological need. Mm. So just drink more water. So drink, <laughs> drink more water or, or like have a glass of water next to your bed. That's, that's what I do. So I okay. wake up morning and I drink it. So basically my rule is I don't believe anything that my brain tells me until I've, I've, I've drank water. I've drunk some water. I've, I've, uh, you know, done a bit of exercise and I've eaten some food. 
And if I've done those three things, then I can believe what my brain tells me. But until then, until I know that my body is taken care of, well, my, my brain's making predictions trying to tell me why my body's not taken care of. So, man, this takes me in other places, and I don't want to. I don't want to diminish what you just said, but I want to go back to what you were talking about earlier in terms well, yeah. of becoming aware of the mind chatter mm-hmm. and aware of almost. And again, it's not just our religious systems myth stories; it's our own myth stories inside our head about what yeah. my relationship with my wife is, how my kids perceive me, how do I perceive them, how good or not good am I at my job, what is my rank within my, my society, what is, yeah. like all of those stories. And, and you talked about how you're, this is just a cool time in society, and I agree with you, we're seeing a moment, and I really think it's impressive, we're seeing a moment where people are becoming, we've hit this critical mass, and people have enough voice now where you're seeing, for instance, I'll give one example, psychedelic drugs being legalized across the nation. Mm-hmm. And when you take a substance like psychedelic mushrooms and what people purport, those who have studied that, Michael Pollan, for instance, How to Change Your Mind, and other folks who delve into neuroscience and talk about what psychedelic mushrooms do for human beings, when people take psychedelic mushrooms, the, the perception is that you are opened up to seeing some of what's going on behind the curtain inside your own head. You yeah. see the mind chatter, you see the stories and you start having this um, like, it's like you're staring it in the mirror and you start to deal with some of these stories that you've built your life around and you can now start to deconstruct them and see what's going on. As you're pointing out, just being aware of those stories in your head opens you up to going like, Oh, that I do this thing. I don't have to do that this thing today. I could do something different. I just think, as you're pointing out, that the society is, is hitting this moment where I think in another decade or two or three, maybe, we are all going to have access to tools and resources that open us up to being aware of, of those, kind of, that, those kind of stories and mind chatter just running through our head all the time. Yeah. Yeah, I think that, um, I, I think that we are in, in, a, in a point where we're about to have a, a big, sh- like a, a tip in, in our, in society. And I think it's, it's built around that. Cause it's not just about, it's about being aware of your story and it's about being aware of the stories around you that, that people are, are telling you. The, the, yeah. the phrase that I use that I like that, that kind of helps me, like once I give a name to something, it's easier for me to, to like grapple with it and, and think about it. It's an operating story, right? Every human has, is running an operating story. And their operating story is everything that's ever happened to them, what they think about everything that's ever happened to them, what they expect and think will happen to them in the future, all of their mental models of all the people that are around them. And, and all of that exists in, in their head. And when we are running that story, that's what we're actually living. So we're all doing that. And, and I've, I've noticed that, especially when I observe my kids. So I'm, I'll sit and I'll kind of watch my kids and I'll interact with them. And what I see is there's a story that they're telling. And if I come in and I, I interrupt that story, that's where I have conflict. Or sometimes I can see that story take them into, into, you know, into specific places that, is, that to me feel ridiculous because I'm like, I'm outside of that story. And, and when like the, my kids will get in arguments about stupid things, right? I'm like, you do not need to be fighting about if she touched you or not. My gosh. But that's because my story, the operating story that I'm running is different, right? In their story, that action makes complete sense. And so I really think that like, it, 
for me, it's made me more compassionate to realize that every, every person's actions are, are internally logical to them. They make sense in the context of the story that they're telling. That doesn't mean that, they're the, that that's the best story that they could be telling. That doesn't mean that those actions aren't sometimes you know, uh, cruel or um, abhorrent, but it does mean they make sense. Right. And one of the, and that's kind of the, the, another going back to the behave book. One of the points that he makes there is that when we, when we villainize and demonize people who are, who do awful things, um, what we do is we actually deny that part of ourselves. And what we say is I could never, that there, there, there's something other than human rather than recognizing they're exactly human. And they got sick in the way that humans do, which is they, they, at some point their story went bad. And if you can recognize that and then start to start to try and once, once I try to, if I think about a, a story as something that people are like, that's what people are running, right? The life that they're living is the story that, them tell, that they're telling themselves. That opens them up to influence for me, right? Because then I can lean into that and I can try and think, okay, what is the story that they're telling themselves? How can I help them create a better story? How could I help them create a more positive story? How could I nudge that story that they're telling and kind of make it into something that is, that's more useful to them. And so I do that with my kids. I do that with, with my friends. I do that with my wife. I do that with myself because my story sometimes gets a little bit dark too. And so, you know, that's, I think kind of what, going back to what, what you were saying, that's one of the things that's really interesting about a lot of the research that's going on around psychedelics and stuff is that what it's doing is it's allowing us to, and psychedelics aren't the only ways you can do this, right? Meditation is a, a great, great tool for this as well. Anything that gets you space from your story and lets you examine it. Because we're going to live in story, right? That's just, you can't always live in a space, in a place where you're not running that story. But if you get space from your story and you're skilled at deconstruction, kind of going back to what we had talked about earlier, deconstruction and reconstruction, you can recreate your story into something that's more, that's more, fun and it's more uh meaningful and it's more uh it's more compassionate and and who who doesn't want to live a better story you know yeah good good stuff um i'm trying to think offhand like i like you're right we talked we did an episode early on where we talked about different things that help us awaken and and i think anything that exposes you either opens you up to seeing your own story in a new way or exposes you to being um around someone else's story. In, in, in other words, travel, for instance, if I go to lots of different places and I see how other cultures operate and I see other religions in those cultures and I see other political systems and, or, or as you pointed out when you and I talked to this party, like you read a ton and you pointed that out earlier in, the, in this episode that you read a ton. When, when we read tons of narratives uh, that exposes us to other stories, right? Yeah. And, and so anytime we're exposed to diversity, anytime we are, um, challenged that our story now is sensed like, oh, our story isn't the only story that works in this situation. And, and on, as a side note, I'm jumping another place too. As a side note, we're at a party last night and there's 10 people there. And as I sit on the couch, I'm just watching people. I love watching people. Uh, you mentioned loving to do this too. Yeah. You can see that everybody has got their own story in their head. And when you're when you're not aware of that, like you're, you know, you've had a couple drinks and you're just enjoying the, what's going on, you kind of think everybody's in the same place you are. You're telling a story and everybody's taking the same interpretation. Everybody has the same meaning out of it. But when you sit back and watch it, you realize like that's not the case at all. 
Everybody is very, very different inside their head from the person next to them, even if they're laughing at the same joke, even if they're shaking their heads up and down at the same data point. It, it is so different from human to human. Yeah, and that so two two thoughts on on that one. I love that that insight about uh the, the way if we if we can bump our stories up against other stories and broaden them and i think that that i think is the one of the best ways to to distance ourselves from our stories right and to kind of make our stories more rich and abundant so i love that that insight i think that was a big thing that was missing from from my family and from i think a lot of insular insular, insular cultures and i'd even include mormonism in that i think that mormonism especially in utah is a really it's a really insular enclosed um system, right? You don't interact with a lot of people who are, who are different than you. And, and because of that, your stories become kind of stagnant, right? They, they become, they, they loop. They're just loops of the same thing every, every, all, all the time. And I think that's unhealthy. I think that that leads to kind of a stagnation in, in your, in your development. And then also the, just that, that, that last book comment, you've been reading, uh, uh, you've been reading, uh, how to talk to strangers, right? Malcolm Gladwell. Yeah, I loved. Oh, I loved that book. Yeah, so that just the the point that you remember the the point that he makes about the alcohol isn't a isn't doesn't lower your in, inhibitions; it increases your myopia. Yeah, yeah. Uh, Mikel was talking about this in episode or two ago about the myopic perspective that we have when we're under the influence of alcohol. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. Humans are humans are interesting. I I when when I think of humans as a really really sophisticated animal who are, you know, who's, who, who have kind of been dropped in an incredibly complex social system that is beyond anything that we were, that evolution designed us for. Um, to me, I, I have two responses and it's, it's like, I don't know if curiosity is the right word, but just like fascination. Like it's fascinating to me, the things that humans can do and do do all, all the time. We're amazing. We are amazing, amazing creatures. And it also makes me compassionate because I recognize that a lot of the things that we do to each other that are cruel, we're not, we're not intending to do that. They're born out of, out of pain or they're born out of a story that's just gone bad, but that was trying to make sense of a world that is just ridiculously complex and that we weren't designed for. Um, so it's, it's kind of like, I'm, I'm kind of in love with humans. I think that they are, they're just pretty incredible creatures. I, I agree. I love um, what you said about uh, just humans in general and and your process of awakening and the things that you've done. I think that, um, you know, Bill and I have talked about this too, and you mentioned it, that reading just opens up a whole new world. Um, and, and that was kind of my escape as a kid to get away from the the trauma that occurred in my home as well. And so I just like read. Mm-hmm. Yeah, we, we, we've done a lot on this podcast to try to emphasize like good books. Like you're always reading, Ben. I know that. Uh, Mikkel and I are always talking about like what's the next podcast we're listening to or what's the next book we're reading. And, and we've got group text with our friends where we send out like, hey, I'm reading this book and I'm really finding it interesting. Or, hey, I just listened to this podcast and it was just mind blowing. And it's, it's fun when you start to build a community around exposing yourself to different ideas and what begins to happen. And I I don't know how to describe it other than I came alive. Mm-hmm. Um, that's what it felt like is I, all of a sudden I'm really living like really awake every day and enjoying learning new things and applying them. Totally. Yeah. And I, I love that concept of, of community too, because it, it, you know, if you just wake up by yourself, it's kind of lonely. 
But if, if you wake up and then you look around and you see, it's like, it's like, I imagine it like I'm in a crowd, like at a concert or something. And I'm like looking around at all the faces. And then like, I see a couple of faces that I recognize and I'm like, Oh, you, you, I know you. And that's, that's what it's like when you, when you meet someone or you can connect with, with a community of, of people who are, again, not perfect, not, uh, you know, you know, not in, in any way free of the triggers and the, the, the dramas and the, the pain of, of life, but it's, it's, it's aware of that. It's I'm, I'm aware of myself. I'm aware of the stories that I'm telling and I'm doing my best to, to make it a good one, you know, cause we only, we only get to like, this is the story that we get and, and we can, and we have total control over what the experience of it is. And so you might as well like live a really good story. Mm, yeah. That's just it. We each get the choice to, to live a good story. Cool. I love it. This has been really fun. Ben, what, uh, so usually we pick like a closing song for the podcast and Mikkel, do you have something or should we let Ben pick something or do you have one that you want to use or? Um, I, I don't have one that we should use, Ben. Do you have a favorite song or a song that you think would go really well with what you've talked about today? Yeah. Do you guys know No Hard Feelings by the Apit Brothers? No, but I'm oh. excited to listen to it. Yeah, it's great. No Hard Feelings by the Avit Brothers. Oh, I awesome. love it. Thanks, guys. Cool. I had a ton of fun. Thanks for inviting me on. Awesome. Yeah, this was great. Cool. Yeah, what are we talking about next week, Bill? Uh, next week. Is it my turn or your turn? Yeah, I don't know anymore. <laughs> uh, <laughs> Somebody just keeps taking over. Yeah, no, yeah, yeah that's you, right? <laughs> So you pick, you pick the topic. I mean, I could make suggestions, but then I'd be picking again. So I'll just leave it alone. (laughs) Okay. Okay. So Mikkel's picking the topic next week. Thanks for joining the Almost Awakened podcast. This has been another Almost Awakened episode. Check us out at almostawakened.org, where you can check out past episodes, make a donation to keep this podcast running, email us a question or comment, or find out more about the resources shared in today's episode. For coaching opportunities or extra support, visit nonsensespirituality.com to meet with certified spiritual director Brittany Hartman.